hard to believe that there is a growing faction of people out there that think Mike DeWine is not conservative enough. One of the things we'll be talking about on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm, I'm stunned by what we're about to talk about, but let's get to it. Did President Donald Trump really take a cheap shot at Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who managed Trump's successful Ohio campaign and has done verbal gymnastics to avoid criticizing Trump for his failed approach to the coronavirus and his efforts to undermine the election system? Jane Cahoon, this one boggles my mind because, I mean, we, we've joked about it. Chris Wernowski's birthday was yesterday. He said it would be a gift if I would let him come in on his day off to talk about this one because <laughs> he's been so frustrated that Mike DeWine, a leading Republican, keeps saying nice things about Donald Trump, who who just has no regard for the Constitution <laughs> or anything else. And and so here's Mike DeWine, who in repeated instances has had has gone out of his way to praise Donald Trump. And Trump <laughs> tweets a cheap shot. Tell us what it's about. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that uh, the governor did not have a good day on Monday. You know, first his POCO chairman got his house searched by the FBI, and then the president taunted him by by suggesting the governor would face a Republican primary challenge when he's up for reelection in 2022. That Trump's tweet said, "Who will be running for governor of the great state of Ohio?" will be hotly contested, exclamation point, of course. Um, so I think we know by now that that when anyone says anything slightly, the slightest bit critical about Trump, he responds with with fury. And, and what he apparently was responding to on Monday this time was DeWine appeared on CNN Sunday and acknowledged not only that Joe Biden was the president-elect, uh, but he said that, you know, while Trump has every right to pursue these legal challenges regarding the election, that the presidential transition really just should proceed. So <laughs> so all of these months that DeWine has spent praising Trump and, and showing deference to him, even when Trump said or did like totally outrageous things uh, that were contrary to DeWine's approach to the coronavirus or the election, you know, plus DeWine's support for Trump's incredibly successful campaign in Ohio, where where he, you know, had a big margin of um, of uh, success. It, they've been rewarded by the president by by him publicly bashing DeWine to his millions of of Twitter followers. Um, you know, a, a couple of other notable things about this, the the Ohio Republican Party, which is essentially a Trump machine but also supports the governor. They went just radio silent on this. They wouldn't make any statement about <laughs> it at all. Although at least one potential DeWine opponent, uh, you know, for 2022 was was willing to talk to us. And that was former Congressman Jim Renacci, who he's been believed to be laying the groundwork for quite some time about, you know, for a possible challenge to DeWine. He he had uh, initially run for governor in 2018 when DeWine was running, but later was persuaded to run against Sherrod Brown that year uh, for Senate, and he lost that race. But Renacci is somebody who's really strongly aligned himself with Trump, and he, and he now chairs the Medina County Republican Party and also uh, had launched a, a political nonprofit that's been 
critical of De- DeWine and he was tweeting over the weekend criticizing DeWine for uh, declaring Joe Biden the president-elect and 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 DeWine's possible closing of bars and restaurants because of this coronavirus spike. Anyway, so uh, he, he said, uh, he told Andrew Tobias on Monday, I'm going to continue to support people who support making Ohio a better place to live, work, and raise a family. When it comes time to see if the governor is on track for that, if he's not, either I'll make a decision or someone else will make a decision and I'll either support those candidates or not. I'm not saying no to anything. And then when Andrew, you know, pressed him on, you know, it, whether there was someone else who might be able to effectively challenge DeWine, he said, most people who contact me think I'd be best suited because I've run statewide before. Yeah, he so, got trounced <laughs> statewide before. Look, there's a couple of things here. I mean, look, we've all dealt with people like this, right? I mean, I, in a previous life, I dealt with a page designer who you could agree with them 99 times out of 100. And that one time you disagree with them, it was you hate me. Nobody likes me. I mean, storm away and sulk for days. That I mean, I, that's what the president's doing here. I mean, Mike DeWine <laughs> has been his rabid supporter. I mean, in defying logic, not not calling out the president for his bumbling failed response to the coronavirus, actually saying at times the president's done a great job on the coronavirus, which is emphatically not true. Right. So so he does all that. And one time he says, President elect Joe Biden, and that's it. You're done. You're dead to me. You know, I, I forget where I read it, but somebody did an analysis on Trump and said the reason he likes dictators in other countries is because for no other reason than they say nice things about him. And that's it. Say nice things about <laughs> Trump. You're in. Say one thing against him. You're dead to him. I mean, this was staggering. This guy- And get this. I mean, DeWine issued a statement after this. And, you know, it was sort of like, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> he said, I've always had a great re- uh, working relationship with the president. I'm proud to have served as President Trump's campaign co-chairman in Ohio, where we won by the largest margin of any swing state in the country. And I intend to run a winning campaign for governor in 2022. So uh, he definitely. I don't think think he had said before he's running in 2022. That was the first actually, I think, formal statement that says I'm running for reelection. Had he ever Hmm. said that before? That's a good question. I don't believe so. Maybe but I, I can't I, say. Man, this is I, Laura Johnston. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard him say that. And I think we've talked about it on this podcast. Like, is he going to want to run after this? But maybe Trump saying it's going to be hotly contested <laughs> was like, well, I'm in. I mean, well, that, he that said was intent. The... He didn't say I will. OK, so, you know, politicians are always in the moment and and uh, they never are, you know, uh, but, but definitive were... about anything. People are still speculating as late as a week ago that they made a deal. He and Houston that he would serve one term. And so that that was news. But 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 think about what has happened in Ohio. You really don't have a single Republican Party. You've got two two factions of the Republican Party. Now, the fact that Mike DeWine, who has been pretty popular as governor the last two years, would face a primary challenge in Ohio is kind of mind boggling. 
But the fact that it's going to be that he's liberal. I mean, we got a press release today from the Cleveland Right to Life group. It's not the main overall Right to Life group of Ohio. It's kind of a splinter group that's arch conservative and sometimes puts out statements that, that kind of stretch the imagination. Anyway, they withdrew their endorsement of Mike DeWine and John Houston today because they're not tough enough on abortion. I mean, if you if you think about Mike DeWine, you know, he does not do he he is proud that there's no death penalty happening in Ohio because it violates the religious beliefs that are the part and parcel to his opposition to abortion. This is one of the most anti-abortion political leaders I've ever seen. And they're saying he's not anti-abortion enough because he appointed Amy Acton health director. Boggles the mind. So so we we are going to have in two years just the craziest election cycle in Ohio where Mike DeWine and John Houston are going to have to go out and convince Republicans <laughs> they're conservative enough. I guess I can't retire before then, right? No, you absolutely can't. That's going to be way too much fun. I mean, I just, I don't get it, man. I would have, who would have predicted two years ago that, that, that at this point people would be saying Mike DeWine's too liberal. Anyway, fascinating. Jim Renacy, opportunist, immediately raises his hand. What kind of party unity is that? If you got I have one more funny thing here because this just cracked me up. A few hours after this tweet, Biden, who was addressing reporters Monday, I think in Delaware, singled out DeWine for praise. He said he has enormous respect for Republican conservative governors who have issued mask mandates, including DeWine. (laughs) So this story just had every element to it. It was it was great. It's mind boggling. I, I mean, they just, I didn't see that coming. And wow, how ungrateful is, is Donald Trump? This is the one swing state that he won and he won it big. And Mike DeWine was the campaign manager. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What are greater Cleveland restaurateurs doing to prevent Ohio Governor Mike DeWine from shutting them down again? Laura Johnston, it's, it's, uh, a big publicity campaign going on all of a sudden to to stop Mike DeWine from doing what he said he might do last week. What's going on with the restaurant tours? So they launched an effort called hashtag We Can't Close, and they've got a, a lot of big name restaurants in this group: Angie Soul Food, Astoria Market, Beer Market, Dante, Edwin's, Fahrenheit, Majorca, Marble Room, Pickwick and Frolic, Winking Lizard, and these are independent restaurants that are saying, please governor, do not shut us down. They say their workers can't survive a shut, another shutdown, that they themselves might not be able to keep their doors open. They reiterated a pledge to adhere to all local and state guidelines, as well as the Ohio Restaurant Promise from the Ohio Restaurant Association. And they said, don't shut us down just because there are some bad actors. And those are the bars that the Ohio Investigative Unit has cited for not following social distancing or liquor sale restrictions because restaurants aren't allowed to serve after 10 p.m. Well, it always gets back to the data. I mean, they're saying they're safe, but they don't have any data to show they're safe. And the coronavirus <laughs> could be floating around in there while people are eating. But they have rightly point out the government doesn't have any data that they're unsafe. Nobody's actually done the work to find out how the, the coronavirus is spreading. We also see gym owners organizing in a big way. The, the YMCA ran a full page ad, the, the various YMCA's in Northeast Ohio, they ran a full page ad on the Plain Dealer today saying, hold on, hold on, don't shut us down. We're doing everything to be healthy. We are taking care of children whose parents are working at home. Think about what you're about to do uh, before you before you move there. 
it's been fascinating to see how quickly they've all kind of unified to block this. And we have not heard from Mike DeWine. Jane Cahoon, do you think he'll talk about some of this today? He might, but he uh, specifically said, or his spokesman did yesterday, that that decision is not coming until Thursday, but he's going to do something else today. He's going to have some other kinds of announcements that are geared toward protecting hospitals from this surge. But we can certainly expect a question of him because he said last week, if things don't turn around, I will close these things down. It's five days later. Are you seeing any changes? I get it. You're not making your decision today, but do you like what you see so far? We'll certainly <laughs> well, expect that question. He'll get a asked. question. I don't know if he'll he get an answer. He'll he hasn't an even answer. said what he's going to be looking at. You know, he never on Thursday when we asked the question or reporters did about what measurements he's taking into account to make this decision. It, it, he kind of hemmed and hawed about it. We, we don't know what metrics he's looking at. Well, he called his health department and said, are we measuring anything? And they said, not really, Governor. We guess we should have. Would have helped us to have We that haven't data. hit 8,000 since Friday. Maybe, maybe we're leveling off. Maybe, maybe that's what he'll say. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we know anything more about the FBI search of the home of the chairman of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission, Sam Randazzo? Jane Cahoon, we talked about this. This was breaking news in our podcast episode yesterday. So we were racing around trying to get the story published. What did we learn in the last 24 hours? Well, we don't have too much more information on it. Jeremy Pelzer was out there at Randazzo's home in the German village neighborhood of Columbus as the FBI agents were carrying out these boxes and bags. All that we got from an FBI spokesman was we're conducting a court-authorized law enforcement activity in that area related to a sealed federal search warrant. And he said, so I can't go into any details. Uh, there weren't any arrests made yesterday and no other searches that we know of. The PUCO said its offices were were not part of the search. And Governor Mike DeWine, who appointed Randazzo to head the P- PUCO, didn't really make a comment or, or take any action as a result of this. He said, we're aware of the search warrant, or his spokesman did anyway, we're aware of the search warrant and we'll monitor it as it progresses, but we have no further comment at this time. So that's probably something he'll be asked about today at his uh, briefing. But so we we don't have a, a lot of information about this or how it might be related to the House Bill 6 corruption investigation of state government. But lots of speculation, of course, about what this portends, uh, you know, now. So Well, and I we, we should point out that there is a difference between what happened in the summer when Larry Householder was arrested up until that point, the FBI investigation was secret. So they, if they would have raided Householder's house to get evidence to indict him, everybody would have known that investigation was going on. They didn't want that to happen. So they worked in the background and then exploded into the news by doing the raids and, and arresting everybody. But now everybody knows about the investigation. So it costs them nothing to do a search warrant without making arrests, to gather the evidence they need to build their cases. Uh, which so I'd say, I'm not surprised there wasn't an arrest yesterday. I am a little bit surprised that they didn't serve any, they didn't search or do anything with the PUCO. I wonder if the PUCO has received previous subpoenas that we don't know about. We probably should do a records request to find out because they wouldn't have been very public about it. Rondazzo has been a, a lightning rod for criticism. He seems like he's pretty tightly 
affiliated with the utilities he's supposed to be regulating. Mike DeWine has stood by him a couple of times. It'll be interesting to see what he says today. Sure will. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest casualty of the coronavirus in Cleveland? And what sad benchmark did Ohio hit Monday in the pandemic? Laura Johnson, I don't think the announcement of what we're losing is a surprise, but when it happens, it's still something worth taking note of. Yeah, so bad news on the trade show front. If you were looking forward to the Cleveland Auto Show, uh, it's postponing its March show. Um, And this is a big deal for Cleveland car dealers since they sell more new cars in March than any other month. But the IX Center is closed and announced in the fall that they were closing their doors and the pandemic isn't showing any sign of slowing. Right now, there's not allowed to be trade shows anyway. And the auto show follows the announcements from the RV show and the boat show. Um, But there there is some hope. They say they're in talks with the city of Cleveland, Huntington Convention Center, and even the IX Corporation about hosting some kind of show in the future. So they're still hoping to have it. I mean, with news of a vaccine on the horizon, maybe they're hoping to push it back into the summer. Maybe they could have something outdoors. They haven't really said. But yeah, we we are still going up, even though we haven't hit another record since Friday in the number of coronavirus cases. But we surpassed 300,000 total cases uh, in Ohio on Monday. So we are now at a total of 305,364. The they're, the sad thing about the auto show, check me on this, but that was the last show before everything was shut down. So by them canceling, it will mean one full year of no big trade shows at the IX Center. And that's a long time, man. That's when you think about that, that we're dealing with this pandemic for a full year when this thing doesn't happen. There was another number that uh, Rich Exner, a data guru, put out yesterday about the coronavirus that was shocking. There were just under 90,000 active coronavirus cases in Ohio. And October 1st, I think Jane Cahooney said we had 16,000. Yeah, something like 16,000. Wow. So it just jumped, you know, like fivefold. Well, you know what? what I've noticed, too, is that a lot of people had been saying over the months, I don't know anybody that has coronavirus. Do you know anybody that has coronavirus? How big a deal is it? You're hearing f- fewer and fewer people say that. I was on a conference call yesterday with uh, some other people in our company, and two of the people on the call believe they have coronavirus. I mean, it's everywhere suddenly. Wow. And I think m- many, many people are being exposed. A lot more people are being tested. Uh, so stay home, stay safe. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we have any idea whether Ohio's school students are learning anything during the tumult of this pandemic? Jane Kuhn, Emily Bamforth did one of the best stories we've had in the past couple of weeks in doing an analysis of, of whether we can even tell if our education system is working during the <laughs> pandemic. So talk a little bit about what you found. Okay, I'm going to attempt to explain this. And then I know that you two, Chris, the (laughs) house of a teacher and Laura Johnston, the parent of two young school children are both going to be eager to just jump in and take it away. But basically, Emily talked about the she started off by talking about, you know, everybody knows about the summer slide, the, the term they use to describe, you know, what kids lose when they're on summer vacation, and then they come back. So this is the same type of phenomenon, you know, that applies where to all the learning that's been lost during this pandemic. But the researchers in education haven't really been able to gather 
complete data on, on the extent of this problem. Be, you know, students are still largely out of school and dealing with the effects of the pandemic. So they can't really get a nationwide or even a statewide picture on this. And, you know, individual districts may be able to gauge how their students are doing, but th- but there's not really like a big picture look on this. They, they canceled standardized testing in Ohio in the spring and and then the testing that's expected to take place this fall could could be flawed. Um, so, but they they talk about this thing called formative testing that happens in the classrooms and online throughout the course of the school year that that's supposed to give them a better picture. This is where teachers, you know, do quizzes, activities, and other tools to to just regularly keep tabs on how the students are doing. And the experts said that, you know, many teachers, they, they end up with a fairly good grasp of, of what's going on through by using those, those tools. And they can, these formative assessments can allow teachers to immediately assess a student's progress and then allow them to make adjustments to, to, to what they're doing. Does that Large. make sense? <laughs> yeah, Laura Johnston, go ahead. Okay, so I I did want to weigh in on this. I did find Emily's story really enlightening, big picture. I just had parent teacher conferences last week, and so I wanted to know like, are these kids learning the same amount as they would normally be learning in their grades? Like, how close are they to the curriculum? And they said that yes, they're pretty on track to where they normally are. And my kids are going to school half days, um, so they can spread the kids out more. Um, but they said basically there's no fun in school. They're not doing any of those extra things like book fairs and they don't have recess or lunch to worry about. So they're really just cramming information in them and then sending them home to do more work. So they they say they're they're holding up. And I know that the schools have been really working hard with kids that are on specialized plans to try to address special needs. So I, I actually felt better after that, that my kids aren't losing as much knowledge as I thought they were only going to school half a day. You don't know if it's sticking, though. We no. won't know for a while. I mean, this could be a lost school year. I, I was talking to columnist Layla Tassi yesterday, asking her to write a Thanksgiving Day column because everybody is so miserable. It's the coronavirus. It's the nasty presidential election. It's the social unrest. And said, you know, it's the one day of the year where you sit back and say, OK, yes, this year has been the worst. But there's still a lot of things in life that I'm glad are here. And I think one of those is teachers. I mean, the teachers have just risen up in a, in the most challenging time, trying to educate kids. It's always hard anyway. And to throw this many hurdles at them while they're risking getting the coronavirus and scared to death of what they're being exposed to, you got to marvel teachers, police officers, firefighters, the people who pick up our trash, they're all still there. And, and yes, we're in a, in a horrible pandemic, but we do have to be grateful that there are people that are continuing to serve. And it's because of them that I think you could say, Laura, you feel some confidence that things are working. It's because the schools and the teachers stood up. Oh, absolutely. I, I, they're doing a tremendous job in terrible situations They're and they're teaching, you know, they've, they've boiled down the curriculum and they've tried to figure out what works and you forget, I mean, they learned entirely new systems to put all of their information online and to reach out virtually. And some schools are still doing completely virtual learning right now. And so they've had to completely overhaul their lesson plans. These teachers are doing an incredible job under very difficult situations. Yeah, they're, with they're the, heroes who don't wear capes. As <laughs> <in the day. laughs> they're uh, 
as the virus spreads the way it is, they're getting very afraid. They're, I, I know that there's mumbling going on that we should all be virtual. It'll be interesting to see what the next month brings. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much are Cleveland hospital leaders saying coronavirus cases could increase before the end of the year unless people in Northeast Ohio step up their precautions? Laura Johnston, the hospital leaders came together in uh, in the Sunday Plain Dealer to advocate that we all take precautions because they're worried. But then they made a statement yesterday that put some numbers behind their fears. Yeah, they said we could quadruple our cases. So leaders from the Cleveland Clinic, Metro Health and University Hospitals came together for a virtual news conference. They said this current spike would be just the beginning, which is mind boggling, that we could see hospitalizations rise from roughly 470 on Monday to 1500 or even 2000 near Christmas. And even Each of the health system says that they feel like they have enough beds and supplies to handle a spike in hospitalizations currently, but they are really concerned for the caregivers who have been bombarded with this since the start of the pandemic. Cleveland Clinic CEO um, Tom Mahalovic said, if we continue at the rate we're going, our hospitals will be overwhelmed. And no one wants that. Well, and just a week ago, a week ago, what, yesterday, a bunch of medical people were on Mike DeWine's briefing saying our capacity is fine and we don't see that being a problem, which you know nobody believes because the numbers are racing up. What I find interesting about this is the hospital leaders in Northeast Ohio have not been alarmist and they've largely been truthful about what's going on. They're not like the county health board where you really can't trust them at all and they go secret all the time. So for them to come out and be public about this, you know, that that should be a red flag to people that that they should stop the gatherings, they should stop doing the football parties, and be much much more careful. Uh, I wonder if anybody's listening. I mean, we are. <laughs> are people listening to us? But yeah, I mean, some more numbers. Mahalovic said the clinic had 450 coronavirus patients, and that's about 9% of their capacity. UH has 300 coronavirus patients. Metro Health said the system is at 80% occupancy. So, I mean, these are getting, these numbers look, I mean, like they're, they're climbing. And I think, you know, you talked about this earlier that a while ago we would say, do you know anybody with coronavirus? And we were all like, no. And now you do know people and you do know healthcare workers who are talking about how they're dealing with COVID patients now and they didn't have to before. The floors are full and people are starting to become aware that this is not some remote problem. This is affecting all of, all of us. What's scary is when you talk to people who have it or have been tested because they think they have it, they don't know where they got it a lot of times. Some do. I mean, some are very clear about it. But I, the number of people, unless they're, they're just fibbing, that are saying, you know, I wore the mask. I haven't gone anywhere. I don't think I've been with anybody. I don't know where I got it. That's what's frightening because you can take all the precautions and still end up with it. The, the the odds are better when you take the precautions. So we'll have to see if the uh, people take precautions and prove the hospital predictions wrong. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's new order about weddings and funerals? Jane Cahooney talked about this last week, but it always takes a few days for these orders to actually come out. What does this one say? Well, yeah, this one applies to weddings and funeral gatherings, which are, are basically exempt from the 10-person limit on gatherings. Uh, you might remember DeWine had opened things up a bit and allowed catering facilities to host a bunch of people. And But but recently, he's told some really tragic stories about 
about illnesses that have resulted from these kinds of gatherings when people are letting their guard down. Anyway, this revised order is going to limit activities during these gatherings. No socializing or activities in open areas, and that includes dancing, so that's forbidden. Um, Guests have to be seated at all times. They are going to allow, like if it's a wedding, they can do a first dance, uh, a toast, and they can cut the cake but no other no other dancing the the food and beverages have to be served to guests in their seats so no buffets or self-serve bars um they have to wear masks except when eating or drinking and no more than 10 people per table and they all have to be from the same household but um Anyway, I just have to say, who would want to eat a buffet anymore anyway? But <laughs> how, how do you enforce that? How do you enforce that people sitting at the table are in the same household? How do you enforce people not dancing? Well, I, have you I don't know that they will. You know? <laughs> I mean, I guess this applies to people who obey the law because they want to obey the law. I don't think those are the ones that are they're being reckless already. I just don't know how you enforce any of this. Uh, it'll be interesting. I to think see. a lot of things the governor relies on people's goodwill, and you know, yeah, he's, but, not, and he's not always rewarded for that's that. That's working really, really well. <laughs> Somebody uh, messaged me yesterday and said, "Well, what about when they drink? Because everybody knows you use your best common sense and follow all the rules when you're imbibing alcohol. So, we're not cutting back on the alcohol at the weddings." Yeah, I guess. But if he cancels weddings, it'll just give Jim Renacci more more ammunition when he calls the governor too liberal. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm still marveling over the turn and the Republican Party in Ohio is going so far off the deep end. I, I mean, I, that could actually result in a Democratic shift because I just don't think most people go that far over. That is fringe kind of thinking. Mike DeWine is not anti-abortion enough. What kind of twilight zone have we entered? Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. 